thing to look at, and, I, and you know, I have to kind of put the disclaimer right up front that, you know, I'm not one of these, like, happiness people, but I probably didn't have to tell you that. <laughs> um, you know, and it's an industry now, the happiness industry, you know, and, and, I mean, it's been going on for a long time. I mean, Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking and all that. There's something that yeah, I've been aware of you know, much of my life, and it's annoyed me most of that, that time. <laughs> and the idea that, um, you know, when you're a depressive, people will say things like, well, just cheer up, you know. <laughs> Like really helpful things like that. Like that's kind of like just stop drinking, you know? um, or um, you know don't don't think so negatively, you know. Um, so I, I remember it was it was probably more than fifteen years. It was probably about fifteen years ago. Let me see when this book was published. Uh, Let's see, because this is the book that James Barris started using. Well, it's 1999, really. Oh, I guess it wasn't that long ago. Well, anyway, memory is, you know, not my strong point. Um, James Barris, who many of you probably know, he's a spirit rock teacher. He's actually teaching the month long, this month of the two-month retreat right now. Uh, He teaches in the East Bay as a regular group on Thursday nights there. This is his book called Awakening Joy. Obviously, that's where I got the title for this uh, theme this evening. But before there was this, there was this, How We Choose to Be Happy. And, and James's wife gave it to him some years ago, apparently, 13-something years ago, right after that book came out. And, and James started using it in his teaching. And actually, after he had read it carefully, he he went through, this is like the nine choices of extremely happy people, which right away the title, I'm like, you know, anything's got a number in the title. Oh, wait, my book has a number in the title. Well, anyway, it's actually something that the marketing departments that publishers love, you know, put a number in the title. Um, 20 reasons to buy this book, you know, that would be good, something like that. Um, but he kind of went through these nine choices at, uh, on, at his Thursday night class over a period of nine weeks, I think. And, uh, and I found it really, really helpful, and it surprised me. Because as I say, you know, this kind of cheer up, you know, be happy, don't worry, be happy kind of mentality has always alienated me. But um, there was uh, something... Um, authentic about this. What they were talking about wasn't just cheer up. It was, how does this actually work? And, and uh, if you're familiar with this book, and they actually have it in the bookstore, I'm sure because of James, um, these guys went around, they were actually like consultants, like, like uh, business consultants, kind of like, um, you know, going in and doing workshops, team building, or whatever, that kind of stuff that business people do. Uh, but for, they got interested in happy people, and they, they actually went around and tried to find people who were authentically happy, and, which means part of what they were doing was defining what's happiness. And it wasn't about like being in a good mood all the time. So I was, okay, that's good. 
so I can't do that. But it was more about having a, um, a sense of uh, that your life kind of works, that it kind of makes sense, and that you that that uh, no matter what life throws at you, that you have a way of working with it that that uh, doesn't you know that you aren't overwhelmed even by loss, uh, and that you do. Um, that that you're not embarrassed to actually seek to find happiness on a daily basis, you know, kind of one day at a time. Um, and so, so they they came up with these nine choices, which they list in the beginning. And there's a there's a good summation of this um, right in the beginning. I I actually have a photocopy of it somewhere. Here it is. The nine choices, intention. So this is obviously one of the reasons why James was drunk to it. Oh, what? sounds like Buddhism. The active desire and commitment to be happy and the fully conscious decision to choose happiness over unhappiness. Well, right away you're kind of like, well, I don't know, how do I choose? Well, the second one is accountability, which to me is a 12-step, is certainly a 12-step principle. The choice to create the life you want to live, to assume full responsibility for your actions, thoughts, and feelings, and the emphatic refusal to blame others for your own unhappiness. You made me feel that. (laughs) Identification. And this is where I kind of actually focus a lot, and that's what I'm kind of suggesting on on my homework. The ongoing process of looking deeply within yourself to assess what makes you uniquely happy, apart from what you're told by others, should make you happy. So really asking yourself what makes you happy. I don't, most of us, I don't think, do that. Number four is centrality, the non-negotiable insistence on making that which creates happiness central in your life. Now that's... You know, again, something I suggest that you, you just, for me, that just means I make sure that there's activities that are in my daily life that you know, give me a sense of comfort, of attunement, of presence, uh, of contentment. It, it doesn't have to, it's not necessarily ya, 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 or yippee, yippee, yippee. Recasting, this is a really key one. The choice to convert problems into opportunities and challenges and to transform trauma into something meaningful, important, and a source of emotional energy. That, I think, is just so key. And again, this is a 12-step principle. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will see how our uh, experience can benefit others. You know, that, that is such a key idea in recovery. That, and you know, when I see people who convert, was I talking about that mad Mothers Against Drunk Drivers last week? You know, that's something like that that's really recasting, right? Options, the decision to approach life by creating multiple scenarios to be open to new possibilities and to adopt a flexible approach to life's journey. Hello, if you have to drink and get loaded every day, you have no options. You're on, you know, this very narrow track. I mean, I, the way I viewed my life is I have to drink and use every day, and I'm a musician, and that's what I have to do. So that's, you know, no options. When I got sober and, like, went back to school, it was like, 
you know, just blew open my life. Appreciation, the choice to appreciate deeply your life and the people in it and to stay in the present by turning each experience into something precious. Gratitude practice, something else I recommend. Giving, hello again. (laughs) The choice to share yourself with friends and community and give to the world at large without the expectation of a return. Another 12-step principle, a Buddhist principle, when we let go of self-obsession with self-centeredness and we start to give to others, it's, it's freeing and, and joy-inducing. And finally, nine is truthfulness. Interesting one to have at the end because that was actually the first, <laughs> my first uh, theme in the class. The choice to be honest with yourself and others in an accountable manner by not allowing societal, corporate, or family demands to violate your internal contract. That kind of, about integrity. So, you know, I found that, those ideas, and then James builds on that stuff in this Awakening Joy. Ten steps that will put you on the road to real happiness. Uh, (laughs) Told you, they love the numbers. But this is a beautiful book, and, and as you may know as well, he teaches a, a course. It, it, the book kind of came out of the course. It's, it's something he offered in Berkeley, and it became so popular he put it online. And he now has thousands of people taking that course. And I've taken it. Uh, I took it formally with him in Berkeley, and I did it with him years before in his class. So it's something that I've worked with for a long time. Uh, and, um, you know, it hasn't cured me of depression or anything, but uh, it has really enriched my life and given me some tools for, um, for kind of looking at both the cultivation of happiness and um, the holding of the difficulties, ways to hold the difficulties and to um, work with them uh, when they do arise. Um, so, in some ways, this is uh, the inverse of, of, I'm not sure that's quite the right term, but of last week's theme on healing, where when we were talking about healing, it was more talking about the difficulties and the challenges. And this is, this is sort of turning the mind in another direction. There's a, a beautiful uh, quote that, that James often uses in, in some ways was the... Um, kind of the spark for his, his work from the Buddha, who says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So this, this is where it really ties into meditation practice. And this, that the Buddha, I mean, it's a fairly obvious statement that whatever we focus on, that's going to become what what our mind returns to that's and so the it's a, a, a subtle i hope somewhat subtle but certainly vital distinction to be made between i'm going to think positively rather in to the between that and inclining the mind so inclining the mind is the idea that I'm going to kind of look for and open to, uh, you could say positive, but that's too, that's even too uh, uh, 
exact. You know, they're just going to incline the mind, uh, you know, towards the positive, away from the negative, just in general terms, and not not trying to force something down my throat and force myself to think in a certain way, but just kind of go: Is there a space in my heart right now for something, some joy or contentment, acceptance? You know this idea of awakening joy, it really, it can sound like it's all about being so happy, but how we define happiness is actually a choice as well. And we can, and many people are much more comfortable with a a word like contentment or peace uh, than joy. Uh, But, you know, joy can work too. Happiness. What does happiness mean for you? What does joy mean? So starting to uh, find ways to both cultivate joy through our actions and then incline the mind towards these positive states. This is founded on the uh, teachings on the four great efforts Buddha talked about. And two of those efforts are to cultivate positive and to maintain positive states. So this idea, first of all, of, um, well, let me just start by saying, this is kind of the opening paragraph, which I think I give you guys in the homework too, which is that there are times when the recovery process, as well as the meditation process, can seem like a lot of drudgery. You know, it's uh, trudging the road of happy destiny, you know, um, from the big book, this kind of trudging can get kind of, uh, oh, you know, meetings and I got to sponsor people, write an inventory, you know, and then make amends and I've just got to do all this work. And in the same way that you can kind of hear the Buddhist teaching, well, it's about suffering and then the end of suffering. You've got to notice all your suffering and, uh, you know, in mindfulness, you just see what if you're tired, you're just tired, you know, you don't get to do anything about it. You know. And it can all start to seem like burdensome in some way. My spiritual path it, it can seem really gray, and and no wonder I want to go home and get loaded, you know, because at least then I've got some sense of, you know, uh, pleasure. So I think it's really important, both in Buddhism and in recovery, to find the joy, and uh, you know, to to go to the meetings and enjoy the meeting, you know. Uh, and, you know, to f- hang out with people. And to, I mean, I, when I was newly sober, I, uh, not so much, not, in the first few years when I lived in L.A., I, my, my band used to play for these sober dances. And they were the greatest things in the world, you know, because you didn't have to wait till the third set when people had had six drinks before they'd start to dance. They, as soon as we started to play, they just danced because they were like there to have fun, you know, and you could just see that energy, that sober energy that was so uplifting. So again, just, uh, you know, to, that there, you know, yes, we have to deal with the difficulties. We have to do healing work, but, but part of that and a vital part is to find happiness. And it can be, you know, there can be a wide range. And I, beginning by making this list, as I put it, a list of all the non, non-harmful activities and things you enjoy. So that can include chocolate, you know, and maybe if you're in a food program, maybe it can't include chocolate, but, you know, uh, 
it can, it can be, what I mean is it can include sense pleasures. Um, and, you know, and to, to find the, the small activities, you know, the, that one of the things that I love is the first time I step outside in the morning and just picking up the newspaper <laughs> and stopping and looking up and feeling the air. You know, those moments, I mean, it, they don't, it doesn't have to be, you know, big events. There was an article, guess where, uh, <laughs> recently about um, some research, you know, again, research, but about, uh, it was kind of about the idea of, um, what do they call it, uh, um, not special time, when, it, when, you, when you have like quality time, right? And it was debunking the idea of quality time. It was saying, you know, in a fa- and it was, it, they actually, the researchers like hung out with these families, like watched them or something. I don't know how they do this, video cameras or they have them track. But they just noticed that, that small moments, you know, when dad is leaving for work in the morning and he engages the you know, have a great day at work. I love you guys. Rather than, okay, I got to get to work. You know, the, just these little moments, you know, the, having dinner together. And they were even saying, like, watching TV with your kids, it's fine. You know, that's good. You're, you're together. That it's not like you don't have to take them to Hawaii, you know, for a week to have quality time. That the, and, and that's the way I see this practice, you know, because quality time also applies to ourselves, our own quality time. Where do you find your own quality moments? You know, we, obviously we all have responsibilities and jobs and, uh, and, and things that, that at times are going to be drudgery or going to be work. But, you know, to find those little moments in the day. One of the things I used to do when I worked in an office was when I would get up from my cubicle and walk to the water fountain, I would connect with my body and just, it wasn't, I wasn't doing slow walking meditation, but I was doing walking meditation, just feeling my body and being present. And that was just a way for me of getting back to myself. Oh yeah, centering again, breathing, relaxing. Um, and, you know, it can include big things. One of the things that came up when I did this list in James's class some years ago was golf. You know? and, what I, and so one of the things that I put down here, as I say, uh, be creative and wide-ranging. In our addiction, we often lose touch with the simple or innocent things that once brought us pleasure. I think that's really true for many of us. You know, alcohol and drugs and uh, 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 the various ways we intoxicate ourselves kind of blocks out and numbs us to the simpler pleasures. It also can make us cynical about simpler pleasures. And just, uh, you know, I'm an adult now, you know. I go to the bar and I have a drink, you know, I'm in my suit and tie and I'm drinking and it's like, this is what adults do for pleasure, you know. Kids do those things, you know. You know, when I was a kid, I played golf a lot and I, and I really liked it. And that, you know, when I became a, a impoverished hippie musician, you know, I didn't have money to play golf and I also was like, Golf is for Republicans and with white, <laughs> white belts, you know. I won't wear those white belts. And, you know, it was just like it wasn't cool. And then it was like, you know, after you're sober for a while, hopefully, you know, one of the things that happened to me is I realized, wow, I don't have to be cool anymore. What a relief. 
And it's parting of aging, too, when you realize, you know, you, you really can't be cool. I mean, <laughs> I, there was a time when I could dance, you know, and nobody would laugh at me. But, I mean, now it's just because when, when old people dance, even if they're probably okay at dancing, they just look bad. They look stupid. <laughs> you know, it's just a, one of those things. So, but, you know, I just, wow, I want to play golf. And it took me years, but I started to play periodically. And then when I turned 60, I got some clubs. And, you know, now, of course, I've got an elbow that it won't let me play, but that's life, you know, impermanence. And, and I also found that I got obsessed with it, and like addictively. So, but in any case, I, you know, when I get, when I'm on the way to the golf course, I have this excitement. Like I'm... Like I f- and I know it's connecting with that kid thing, you know, it's the, the child. And I, and I remember when I first went out to play that I, th- I thought, th- it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a conscious thought, it was a feeling like, am I allowed to do this? Are they going to let me, you know, you walk in the pro shop, uh, I'd like to play 18 holes. Okay, that'll be $25. Is that all? Aren't you going to like check, like, if I can play or if I'm any good or I don't know you know it just didn't it was so weird it was so, so it was so so exciting and joyful you know it was just so and you know I'm terrible but and so by the time I play a few holes then I'm in a horrible mood but it's it's joy nonetheless you know you golfers out there know what I'm talking about so I mean that's just an example of just and because th- that's kind of, was kind of a big thing in terms of like time like okay buying golf clubs and I've taken some lessons and all that it can be big things it can be little things but um, to to really look at that how can I make my life happier how can I find more moments that are just you know pleasurable and joyful and then to make a commitment to that to actually do it not to. Say, oh yeah, I would do that if I had time. You know, and one of those things on my list is meditation. You know, uh, meetings. Um, so I suggest that you make uh, notice the thoughts that might get in the way of doing this kind of practice. Um, if you perhaps think it's trivial to want to be happy, as I said, I you know I kind of. Uh, you know, when you get kind of cynical about happiness, you know, that's, you know, I'm too intelligent to be happy, you know. Isn't that kind of like the, uh, there's kind of an idea of that. Like, because we know that great artists and geniuses are always tortured and uh, unhappy and commit suicide. So, you know, and if you've got these romantic notions of yourself, you know, if you play saxophone, you have to become a heroin addict. You know, it just you're just not going to be any good, obviously, if you don't. Um, so, <laughs> you didn't know that? Yeah. No, you become a heroin addict to listen to saxophone. Yes, that's right, yes. Yeah. So, you know, this is where, again, the mindfulness comes in, where we start to notice, well, what's in the way of this? You know, don't I want to be happy? And what's, you know, what stands in the way of it? Uh, do you think you don't have enough time to do something for yourself? Yeah. Um, do you deserve this? Yeah. Do you deserve to be happy? Just watching those thoughts. Um, and 
if you can't find time to do things that make you happy, what the hell are you doing with your life? <laughs> That's so important, you know. Really? You know, you're just so important that, you know, you just have to work all the time. Because, God, what would that company do without you? Because they'll probably lay you off next week, and then you'll find out. You know? <laughs> and again, find, that can be just to find the moments. You know? Not the hours and hours, but the, the five seconds, the five minutes. Do you think it's selfish to pr- be pursuing your own happiness? Which would mean, like, well, other people should be happy, but, I, you know, I'm not sure I really should be. I, I've got to help everyone else to be happy. But if I'm thinking about my own happiness, that's selfish. Well, it makes no sense if you put it in those terms. Of course, that's why there's a program for those kind of people. Um, but uh, as I point out, it's like the the practice of sending loving-kindness to yourself, many people do struggle with this idea of actually starting to look at what would make them happy. And, you know, and then there's people who have no problem with this at all. You know, it's like, yeah. Well, and, and maybe that's the other side of it. It can be, well, uh, where it's a self-centered. And this isn't about being self-centered because a big part of being happy is giving. Uh, this is one of the things the Buddha pointed out when he talked about generosity. Uh, the, you know, when we talk about dana in, in, at Spirit Rock and Buddhist centers, it's usually only in the last five minutes at the end of a retreat or the end of a class. And we're talking about it only in the context of, oh, there's a basket out there. And, uh, you know, generosity is a really great practice. And would you put some money in the basket for me? But you can see in the text, in the traditional text, so the, there's different forms of the sutras or suttas. Where some of them were written or spoken more for the monastics. And those focused much more uh, closely just on meditation practice or on some uh, you know, dharma topic that really gets... Expanded, expounded. But in the, in the suttas that were given to lay people or, or to people who were just being introduced to the, to the idea that the Buddha was trying to get across, which is that clinging causes suffering, letting go brings happiness. He started, he didn't start by teaching meditation. He didn't start by teaching the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. He started by teaching generosity. Now, this could seem self-serving, of course, but since the Buddha wasn't accumulating any goods, uh, you know, I don't think it was about him trying to you know, fill up his bowl with rice. But rather that he saw several things, several purposes in generosity. First of all is that it is the embodiment of letting go. It's the physical expression of the Four Noble Truths, letting go, or this third and fourth anyway, letting go brings happiness. So it's an opportunity to give people that teaching in a very direct 
and practical way that they can experience here and now without having to meditate and have some like, oh, like mindfulness, okay, I'm having a thought, I let go of the thought, I feel better. No, you know, that takes a while to get to that place. It's very direct, very simple. So people would have that experience. What he also pointed to, which is really a precious and a useful part of cultivating happiness, is, is to notice, what he said is, notice when you are about to do something skillful. So around generosity, to notice, oh, I'm going to give something, and notice how that feels, right? It's uplifting, it feels good. Notice as you are in the act of generosity, how that feels. Ah, there's a moment of free, freeing and a feeling of, uh, of uh, supporting something that I care about. Uh, and and um, of releasing, of seeing that this material thing that I have, that it's okay to let go of it. So in that, there's a faith in that, right? Because if you're going to give something to somebody, it means you, you feel safe and that it's, it's okay to not have, hold on to everything. <laughs> so there's this feeling of freedom and faith that comes with it. And then afterwards there's a good feeling of remembering what you've done. So the Buddha specifically, he gave this instruction very clearly. Notice all these stages because that reinforces the positive experience. And again, in our culture, there can be this kind of like, uh, you're not supposed to feel too good about being generous. It's like, arrogance or, oh, you're so, you think you're so great because you were generous. And, and that's not, you know, the Buddha's not interested in that kind of viewpoint. What he's interested in is cultivating this experience, which is both joyful and cultivating of insight. So that you're, you're both having this pleasant experience and having that reinforced by by feeling it all the way through, and through it you're seeing that core principle, letting go is what brings happiness, is what brings freedom. So this is something to do with, uh, that you can use around all the joyful activities. You know, that, that I'm going to do something, I'm going to be of service, or I'm going to uh, do something pleasant, I'm going to... Um, hang out with some friends, and, and to enjoy the anticipation. And, I can, and this sounds kind of like, oh, aren't we Buddhists supposed to stay in the moment? Well, you are in the moment. You're experiencing the moment of anticipation, because that's going to be there. So you can either be like, oh, I'm anticipating, but really caught up in the future, or you can be in that moment of excitement. Wow, this is so great. You know, I'm so excited about this. This is what it feels like to be about to see my beloved or to about to go to the game or the concert and then you're there and you enjoy it and then afterwards you, re you realize oh that was a good thing that I did or that I experienced and and so this this way of kind of uh, completing the experience and really making it a fuller experience is one of the ways that we cultivate appreciation yeah
I went, I didn't really put anything in the basket. Mm-hmm. You know, I was neither for soda or coffee afterwards, and that was really important to me. And yeah. I was just low on money, and then, um, you know, I took a literature position, mm. and you know, you go up to AAHQ in Santa Rosa or Santa Fe, and you like go and pick up some books, and you pay for it, and then you get reimbursed, and maybe you take a treasury position or something, and you see that it actually takes donations to mm-hmm. keep it <laughs> self-sustaining, and yeah. it kind of hit home, and then, yeah. you know, there's like the little H&I can, yeah. you put the change in, and I really didn't think much of it until I was at Helen Vine drying out, you know, and it was just incredibly boring there until the H&I people showed up mm-hmm. and, you know, gave you the meeting. Yeah. And that's, I think, when it, like, really hit home for me. Yeah. Because it does, so I mean, you know, you get to see it full circle. Yeah, yeah. Gives you some perspective on it. Right. Well, yeah. 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 That's what to me is so beautiful about it's. uh, There are several things, maybe many, but at least several that I've noticed in the twelve steps that are built into the program that don't, they don't tell you necessarily why, you know, they, oh, well, to be of service to support you. But it turns out that they're actually things that bring happiness and bring a sense of connection and all of that. That, yeah, I remember the same feeling around, around doing service and, and realizing, wow, when I volunteered to clean the coffee cups, all of a sudden I met another half dozen people just that right away who were also doing service and then you know you get thanked at the end of the meeting maybe and you're part and all of a sudden instead of just being a visitor you're part of it and all it took was to offer myself you know because you kind of look wow wow there's the the cool people or you know or something you know the in people wow i wonder how i could get in well show up and volunteer well you know yeah, it's a it's a beautiful the way that works, and we we don't have enough opportunities like that. I mean, that's we do have that opportunity here. We can volunteer. I mean, we've got some volunteers here. Several of you just have stepped up, and uh, yeah, uh, that's that's what supports any kind of spiritual community. I think in, in maybe some way that it there's this big banner in, in the Alano Club, and I don't remember it was like the disease of loneliness, you know, and it's Mm. that you are like alone in these things yeah it's like you know this, the, the what is it the uh, emptiness of inherent existence mm. yeah absolutely I mean and you know that was one of the the that uh, antidote to all five hindrances good friends and suitable conversation <laughs> you remember that tonight I gave you that teaching right so there you go. It's built into the program again, you know. Uh, I mean, the Buddha has to like say it, okay, and we, you know, then we have a sangha and we create, the, but but it's built into the program, and and uh, yeah, it's very healing. Uh, Chuck C says uh, when virtue uh, sees itself as virtue, it's not virtue anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I I, th- I think that's a little um, extreme. I mean, I, I get what he's talking about. Obviously, uh, you know, when it turns into um, 
what he's talking about is ego, I think. And, but I think it's possible to, to see your good, goodness without becoming attached to it. This is why mindfulness is our constant companion, to, to keep us honest. Uh, but, I mean, this is, this is where, you know, I've read that, and, I, and I, I ultimately I trust the Buddha as much as I respect Chuck C. Uh, I trust the Buddha, and, and I've tested out what the Buddha says you know, in terms of feeling good about, like, you know, many of you have come up to me and said, you know, you helped me so much. You know, thank you for your, for your work and your book. Now, how, am I, how should I hold that, right? Should I hold that as, God, I, I rock, you know? <laughs> and I have, I have fixed all these people, you know, and, you know, I just wrote this book. No. But should I go, oh, it's really not, you know, I didn't know. It's nothing, you know. Uh, because, first of all, I take, when someone says something kind to me, I consider that an act of generosity. And one of the things that I've learned about generosity is that it takes two. If you offer something to someone and they don't accept it, you've stopped them from having the experience of generosity. And that's bad karma. You know, it really is. And so I've tried to really receive it and enjoy it and feel good and think, wow. It's so great that I've done something good, you know. It's really nice. I'm, I'm grateful to myself. You know, when uh, it's 9 o'clock, but not, you know, you guys, you can leave any time. I'm going to keep talking. But um, I mean, that clock says it's 9 o'clock. We know that's just relative. So um, When I was writing One Breath at a Time, I was writing it for myself. I mean... Uh, the, for a variety of reasons. Um, and I wanted to communicate these ideas to people. But the first time I got an email from somebody who said, your book really helped me, it shocked me. I, I went, wow, it didn't occur to me that this was actually going to help people. I mean, th- I know that sounds bizarre. I mean, intellectually it had... I guess, I mean, because I thought, you know, those people in AA really need to learn to meditate, you know, and I hope they're going to figure it out from this book, you know. But, but I, somehow I didn't think of it as like really on the heart level. You know, I thought this is important information for them to get. But when somebody said, this really helped me in my recovery, I was kind of shocked, you know. And so I don't know why I'm saying, I'm just, you know, so then I had to kind of, oh, how do I take that? I certainly didn't think, well, I set out to fix you people, and I did it, you know, because I didn't set out to fix it, you know. And it was just like, wow, that's amazing. And, I, I just, you know, I felt great, you know. And, and so I continued. I need to remind myself. So this is, uh, you know, one of the things that I mentioned down here. Begin to notice the ways you're already creating joy or the conditions for joy. Notice the things you're already doing that are good things in your life. I think, you know, so this is the, the other side of the inventory. We have an inventory that's our character defects. Should we not also have an inventory of our character effects? I don't know what's the opposite of a defect. You know, our good qualities, should we not 
reflect on those as well. I, for a lot of us who are not Bill Wilson, you know, although he was a depressive too, supposedly, but uh, you know, people, you know, a lot of us really need to reflect on our good qualities, and that's an antidepressant. Do you, are you raising? Yeah, I use um, a CD by Sharon Salzberg uh-huh. um, uh, called "The Force of Kindness" that she, for loving kindness mm-hmm. phrases. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so easy and common for us to be mean to ourselves yeah. or attack ourselves. Yeah. You know, remember the mistakes and the things we've done yeah. wrong. So yeah. It begins the loving kindness with that, exactly that. It's a really good reflection. Uh, I, I really recommend that as part of your life, <laughs> part of your practice to, to remember, you know, the fact that you are here today, I said something about this last week, the fact that you are here today is such a statement, is such a positive statement. And on some, whatever you're doing with your program, I don't know, but some, for everybody here is different, but some part of you is trying very hard to maintain or, uh, or attain a state of recovery to get through one of the biggest challenges a human being can have, which is addiction. So that right there shows tremendous courage, tremendous heart, goodness, you know, the desire to be a better person, to improve ourselves. You know, you come here on a weeknight out in the country. I don't know where you guys come from, but it's probably not from across the street. You know, you travel. You've set aside an evening to, you know, to work on on becoming more wise, on becoming uh, more serene, and and you know that all of those. That's just really, you're already a good person if you're here. You know, you are. Uh, you're you're way ahead of most people in the world. Not to like put it into like, a, oh, I'm better than them, but just to kind of, you know, that's one perspective to realize. You know, many people are not making any effort to look into their minds, their hearts, to be honest with themselves, to let go of their destructive behaviors. Look at the, you know, just America, you know. Uh, you know, I saw there was a picture in National Geographic of these people in, at a, some event in, in Montana. It was like some farm, you know, farm community. And it was a picture from the back. And literally 90% of them, and they were just like, 30 people in the picture were obese, you know. And I just saw that and I went, wow, I mean, that's an addiction, you know. And it's something that most people don't deal with, you know. And and just to be trying to be healthy, you know, to be trying to be, you know, here. Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, is the question, is that really true? And someone said to me the other day, well, the only thing wrong with people who think that anything's wrong with them is that they think that something's wrong with them. And, and, the, and I, I think that even when you talk about defects, they're not, 
it doesn't indicate that there's anything wrong. It's, it's an indication that you've behaved in certain ways, given certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. And to try to pull that out of the conversation between bad and good yeah. is, is just more, much more freeing yeah. than trying to attain some goodness that you know is out there somewhere. Yeah, I, I mean, there... I see it in my 12-step program. Yeah. Yeah, and it's very it's very common, and and certainly it's very common in our culture. F to me, there's first of all, uh, you know, you said you started out by saying the feeling that we are, and to to see there's a feeling, you know, and yeah, we're all imperfect. But what you know, what's the grading scale here? What's the curve look like? You know, um, how imperfect. Am I? You know how, how? And certainly, the language of character defects is very troubling and, and problematic. Um, but uh, so you know, the Buddhist uh, one of the phrases that comes up a lot in Buddhism is basic goodness, the idea that, and and where I think this becomes really clear is when the mind does become quiet. When the hindrances are put aside, what's there? So when you put aside desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt, what's there? Well, certainly peacefulness, but also an inherent compassion and love. I mean, your heart just, you know, a feeling of connection, of caring, the desire to help. And that's... And it, but neither of them, ultimately, neither of those things, the, neither the hindrances nor that basic goodness, are personal, either. And this is the, you know, whereas in the twelve-step world we talk about self-centeredness, is the, you know, is the problem. In Buddhism, we go another step beyond that and say, not seeing that the self is an illusion is the ultimate problem. And then when you start to see through that and become less attached to the idea of yourself as an individual, you know, then these you know, flaws and, and good qualities all just kind of, they, they don't have anything to attach to. They're not attached to an identity. They're just kind of out there, free-flowing. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced this in a huge way this last couple of months where I was in a job for several years that was a very negative environment, but it was a real bubble, and it was hard to see. Even when I'd go home, I would just take it home. Yeah. Everybody was really pissy all the time. Yeah. I'd split off to my retreats or my Buddhist talks, and they'd all mock me, like, you know, oh, you're so angry all the time. What do you want to do and be in the woods for? Mm -hmm. And I finally... Right. Right. The Holy Grail yeah. to come down here and be unemployed in Canada and take a risk on happiness. And the amount of people you received, I saw it was a struggle, but I saw it more as their own issues than my own. Mm -hmm. How miserable they are and how much they wish they could take a risk, I think, in their life. Mm -hmm. So it just makes them kind of try and drag you down back with them. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, I've seen that so much the last few months living down here, how, how crazy it is and how unsupportive people were. But then on the other flip side, too, people have been yeah. 
it's almost like a socially social norm to sit around and bitch about stuff, you know. And <laughs> you know, and you know, that's that's okay. But yeah, if it, it when it becomes like really dark and serious, like you really believe it, you know, then I mean, I you know catch myself with politics doing that, and then I'll just you know, and pretty much on a daily basis. In fact, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'll just be like, you know, yelling at NPR, you know, and, and uh, my wife calls it ranting, which is, you know, not a you know, unique phrase, but, you know, it helps that she's identified it so that when she says, you're ranting, I know what that means. It means shut up, you know, it's, it's really annoying what you're doing. And it reminds me like, yeah, and then I say it and I'm like, oh, right, oh, my body feels so like toxic. And, and then I realize, you know, Mitt Romney, the universe. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, in a few billion years, the sun's just going to explode, you know. This won't even be here, you know. So on that happy note, <laughs> hey, you've got to find your joy where you can find it, right? Now, wherever it is. So... Um, Thanks for staying late. Um, I guess we can dedicate the merit. I'm just going to keep my legs crossed. I don't know if you're allowed to dedicate the merit with your legs crossed, but I'm going to, I'm going to find out. So may we all be filled with joy. May our joy radiate out to touch all those we love and all beings. May all beings find contentment and peace and happiness in each moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.